My text is again from Micah chapter 3, verse 5. And I will be focusing my remarks this Lord's Day upon the latter part of that verse and picking up some of the other verses that we have not covered yet in Micah chapter 3. Micah 3, 5. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against them. One of the sacred idols of this present age is that of toleration. At the expense of truth, ministers conspire together to make their message and testimony broad enough to tolerate scandalous departures from the Word of God and from faithful Reformed confessions and catechisms. Preaching for the approval of men preaching to flatter men, preaching to promote the agenda of men is a prominent characteristic of an unfaithful minister. Listen to a few words found in the following interview which illustrates the conspiracy of unfaithful ministers who preach for the approval of men. I've taken... Excerpts from an interview wherein Mr. Robert Schuler interviewed Mr. Billy Graham on May 31, 1997. Mr. Schuler asks, Tell me, what do you think is the future of Christianity? Mr. Graham responds, I think James answered that, the Apostle James, in the first council in Jerusalem when he said that God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not ever know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have, and they turn to the only light that they have, and I think they are saved, and that they are going to be with us in heaven. Mr. Schuler clarifies. What I hear you saying is that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and life, even if they've been born in darkness and have never had exposure to the Bible. Is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying? Mr. Graham states, yes, it is. I've met people in various parts of the world in tribal situations that have never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible and never heard of Jesus, but they've believed in their hearts that there was a God and they've tried to live a life that was quite apart from the surrounding community in which they lived. Mr. Schuler summarizes, I'm so thrilled to hear you say this. There's a wideness in God's mercy. Mr. Graham concludes, there is. There definitely is.
Dear ones, the Lord Jesus never describes such heresy as a wideness in God's mercy, but rather as a broad way wherein many are led to destruction. Last Lord's Day, we considered the first characteristic of an unfaithful minister identified by the prophet Micah in Micah 3.5. And that is that the unfaithful minister leads people into scandalous error in departing from the word of God and from the form of sound words as found in faithful reformed confessions and catechisms. This Lord's Day, we continue in our study of the unfaithful minister by observing the following points. First of all, I'll give two more characteristics of unfaithful ministers. And then we'll consider, secondly, the divine judgments upon unfaithful ministers. Those two main points. First of all, then, Let us consider two more characteristics in addition to the one just mentioned. Two more characteristics stated in Micah chapter 3 of unfaithful ministers. First of all, unfaithful ministers seek their own profit. In Micah 3.5, the latter part of that verse, the Lord says at the very beginning through Micah, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets, and skipping to the latter part of the verse, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Micah now having marked out the unfaithful prophets of his day as causing God's people to err, scandalously to err, now contends that in addition to their scandalous departures from the truth, they look not to the glory of God, they look not to the profit of benefit of the sheep, but they look to their own selfish gain. In graphic language, Micah displays the greed that motivates these false prophets. He says they bite with their teeth and cry peace. That is, as long as their greed and their lust are satisfied, they are content to pronounce blessings of peace upon the people. The language Micah uses here, points again to the animal-like behavior that is prominent amongst unfaithful ministers. But Micah also says concerning these scandalous prophets, that he that putteth not into their mouths, he who does not put the meat, the food, into the mouths of these prophets, they, that is the prophets, even prepare war against them who will not put the meat or food into their mouths. That is, the faithful who would dare oppose these false shepherds and not follow them into their error, nor support their ministry. They attack with a personal vengeance and retaliation. They make war with them. 
One of the characteristics of a faithful minister is that he is not given to greed or covetousness. That is one of the qualifications that we find for a minister in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. There we find these words concerning one who would aspire to the office of bishop or minister, pastor, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Those two qualities, not greedy of filthy lucre, not covetous. Well, we don't walk around ordinarily, and it's not a household phrase, filthy lucre. And so we have to struggle a little bit with what does that phrase refer to? Well, it refers to shameful profit or shameful gain from the two Greek words that are joined together. It actually comes, the word lucre actually comes from the Latin word lucrum, which means profit or gain. And added to that again in the Greek is a, is a word which refers to shameful gain or profit. This qualification by the Lord God concerning ministers teaches that ministers must not only be evaluated according to their doctrine, not only according to what they profess the truth to be, but also according to how they practice and live that truth. This area of greed, dear ones, is simply one example of many other moral and ethical qualities that must be evident in a minister if he is to be a faithful minister. Not a perfect minister, not a sinless minister, but if he is to be a faithful minister, these qualities must be evident in his life. They must be evident in his conversation. They must be evident in his family. There's certainly, dear ones, no shameful prophet. This is a qualification or uh, evaluation that we might draw that any kind of, of profit that the minister would gain would be a shameful profit. No, the Scripture does not teach that a minister is to go hungry. The Scripture says that the congregation who calls a minister is to feed and clothe and care for that minister who devotes his life, who devotes his full time to the ministry of the gospel. Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers of the altar? 
Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel, should live by the gospel. They should be provided for. It is to the profit and to the benefit of the people of God to have a minister serving full time. They will grow. They will be cared for. The Word of God will be preached to them in much faithfulness, diligence, preparation. If a man can devote his full time to the study, pursuit, prayer concerning the Word of God. And I would dare say that it is an indication of a congregation's love for the Word. A love for the Gospel of Jesus Christ when they care enough to provide an adequate salary for a faithful minister. They're really saying, we love the Word of God. We want it preached to us as faithfully as possible. We're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes in order to have that blessing in our midst. That's not shameful profit to have an adequate and sufficient salary to care for the needs of one's family. The prophet Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Micah, also addresses the scandalous greed of the unfaithful shepherds of that time in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 11. There we find this inspired prophet saying concerning these prophets, these false prophets, yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own, every one for his gain from his quarter. They care about themselves, but not for the flock. All they're interested in doing, basically, is fleecing the flock, scattering the flock, but not caring for the flock and feeding the flock. Remember how Balaam, dear ones, is held up in Scripture as an unfaithful prophet because he was lured by his greed and covetousness to accept a bribe from King Balak who desired Balaam to pronounce a curse against Israel. You remember in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, how Peter in that passage addresses this particular failure, this particular characteristic in Balaam and says that faithful ministers are not to walk in the steps of Balaam. There we find these words, speaking of these unfaithful ones, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved the wages of compromise. He loved the wages of a bribe more than he loved 
the righteousness of God's word and being faithful to proclaim it. And we know what happened to Balaam. He was slain by the judgment of God. Remember how Simon the sorcerer sought to buy the office of minister from Peter in Acts chapter 8? When Peter and John went down to Samaria, many believers had come to Christ. They were baptized by Philip and the apostles Peter and John went to lay hands upon them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And here came one who had professed faith, Simon the sorcerer, and he sought to pay money for the gift of laying on upon hands that people might receive the Holy Spirit. He offered a bribe to the apostles for this gift. Peter said to Simon the sorcerer, this tells us again how seriously God deals with these matters of bribes, of covetousness, of greed amongst his ministers. Peter said, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. And remember, dear ones, the charge of the reformers against the scandalous profiteering of the Romish church, wherein that harlot church robbed the poor by selling pieces of paper called indulgences, which Rome wickedly claimed would deliver people from the fires of purgatory, but which only provided the means whereby Rome wallowed in wanton luxury and built huge, ornate cathedrals while the poor suffered, while the widows went without, the orphans starved, and the injured languished in desperate need. Although greed for financial gain is one conspicuous characteristic of an unfaithful shepherd, Greed and covetousness may manifest themselves in other ways as well. Let me give you several ways in which we may see greed evident in the lives of ministers besides simply coveting money. Greed for power through tyranny, through manipulation, and through deception. Whenever authority and power is manipulated so that it is focused in the hands of one man, even though there may be other elders on a session, but when that power becomes essentially, for all intents and purposes, focused in one man, there is a greed for power. Rather than distributing the authority which the Lord has given to a session or to a presbytery, it becomes more like a bishopric focused in one man. There can be greed for power manifested in ministers. That also is a greed and a covetousness. Or secondly, a greed for man's approval. That is tickling the ears of those who come to hear them with what they want to hear. 
simply giving to them the message that they want to hear rather than giving to them the truth. Avoiding doctrines that may offend people, though they are absolutely taught in the Word of God. Keeping a very positive message that makes people feel good about themselves rather than preaching the whole counsel of God concerning sin, concerning violations of God's law, concerning the direction in which a society is heading or the sins within the church or errors within the church, or refusing to address those sins and errors, taking surveys even to determine what kind of worship service the people want. Seeking man's approval rather than looking to the Word of God. And seeking God's approval over all of men's approval. Seeking to be faithful to the Lord our God. Thirdly, there can be a greed for prestige. That is demanding specific titles of honor to be used when addressing ministers such as doctor or reverend. You know, titles of respect are not wrong in themselves. It's not wrong to refer to a man who has an earned doctorate degree as doctor so-and-so or a minister to be referred to as reverend so-and-so. But dear ones, faithful ministers must be sure they are not coveting the title in order to be seen and honored by men. That was exactly the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. They wanted to be called rabbi. They wanted to be called teacher. They wanted to be called father. But the Lord says, don't call any man rabbi, teacher, master, father. For you have one who is master, one who is teacher, one who is father. What was the Lord saying? He was saying that all who assume those titles must recognize that they are in subjection to the Lord God. They do not hold those titles in an absolute sense. And they ought not to demand those titles in order to be seen by men. They ought not to to think that someone has shown them great disrespect if they're not referred to as Reverend so-and-so or Dr. so-and-so. Fourthly, there can be a greed for a large following Faithful ministers, dear ones, must be careful that they do not fall into the snare of believing that growth is due to their own sufficiency and giftedness. The words of John the Baptist, as he compared himself to the Lord Jesus Christ, should be upon the lips and in the lives of every faithful minister. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, to the point that I become, as a minister, less and less conspicuous. To that degree, the Lord Jesus Christ shines forth more and more in all of His glory, convincing and converting the sinner, enabling the, those who have been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ to take the promises of God and apply them to their lives. 
A faithful minister is like John the Baptist to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Not a ringleader at a circus celebrating the greatest show on earth. He's not to be like a talk show host with all attention focused upon him. He is there as a representative, as an ambassador. And if he steals the show, the Lord is robbed of his glory. Fifthly, ministers can show their greed for self-serving knowledge. For knowledge without love puffs up. But knowledge with love builds up. So the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, The faithful minister, dear ones, through his academic degrees, through his years of study of the Word of God, of the original languages, does not draw attention to himself, but rather through the knowledge that God has blessed him with and the training that he has received, the faithful minister, again, is always drawing attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. For his knowledge is simply the mind of Christ. He is simply bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How can he boast? How can he take pride in knowledge which he did not have, which was given to him? That's what a faithful minister does with his knowledge. He edifies and builds up and glorifies the Lord. And finally, a minister may be prone with regard to greed, to have greed for a false kind of unity. A unity without uniformity in doctrine, worship, and government. A unity at the expense of truth and toleration of scandalous error, as if unity was more foundational than truth. As if unity was the foundation and truth was built upon that foundation. No, it is truth that is the foundation. It is Christ and the apostles that are the foundation. Christ being the chief cornerstone and what they have taught and given to us by way of truth. That's the foundation. And upon that foundation is the unity built. Amos 3.3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And each of these forms of greed that I've just mentioned, dear ones, is condemned by the words of Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, wherein the Apostle says, concerning these who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, that we are to avoid them. In verse 17, now the Apostle says in verse 18, for they that are such, that he's just referred to, these who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, 
For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. They serve not the Lord Jesus, the apostle says, but their own bellies. What does he mean? They serve their own appetites. They serve their own profit and their own gain in whatever way that may manifest itself. They're self-serving. But not a faithful shepherd. A faithful shepherd is serving the sheep and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he is not perfect. He is not sinless. But he is faithful and when he sins and when he errs from the truth, he is quick to repent. He is quick to turn from his sin and from his error and to confess it and to press on in righteousness and truth. The second characteristic and actually the final characteristic of unfaithful ministers cited by the prophet Micah is the following. Unfaithful ministers trust in mere external forms of religion. They trust in mere external forms of religion. Consider what the prophet says in Micah 3, verse 11. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. In spite of the gross defection of these false prophets, in the time of Micah, in doctrine and life, they yet maintain from within the walls of the visible church, the visible church at that time, that the Lord was amongst them. That the Lord supported them in what they were doing. And we ask the question, as we reflect back to that particular age, we ask almost in astonishment when we see what they were saying and what they were doing. We say, how could anyone follow such unfaithful shepherds after all that we have noted from Micah concerning them? How could they have a following at all? Well, I suggest to you that Micah gives us the reasons why they had a following at all. He, in fact, gives three reasons in verse 11. The first reason is because they professed to lean upon the Lord. That was their profession. We trust in the Lord. They spoke in the name of God. They were recognized to be ministers within the visible church at that time. Thus, the mere outward form of office of minister or prophet, they claimed to hold. Just because they claimed to hold that office, they secured a hearing from the people. You see, the people were all wrapped up simply in external forms. 
And that was because the prophets were simply teaching them to adhere to external forms. Not to look beyond that to the substance. How we are warned herein, dear ones, not to simply look to the title or office that a man claims to hold as proof of his calling or proof of his message. We have been instructed to be Bereans and to look to the doctrine and to the life of those professing to be faithful ministers. Everything else will indeed lead us into deception and delusion. If we are merely looking at the title or at the office, I can guarantee you, you will be misled, you will be deceived and deluded if that is all you're looking to. Rome claims for its Pope the office of the vicar or representative of Christ. So what? Just because they claim that office, are we to adhere to it? Does that mean that just because the claim is made that it's valid? They even claim that the Pope is the successor of Peter. They believe in apostolic succession, that all the succeeding popes have come and descended from Peter. And we say again, so what? Although the claim is clearly false that is made, nevertheless, even if the claim were true, if the Pope has in fact descended from Peter, but destroys the apostolic doctrine of Peter, are we to follow him? Absolutely not. It doesn't make any difference whether a church claims to have forefathers that were faithful if that church is not adhering to the doctrine, worship, and government of those faithful forefathers, it makes no difference what their claims are. And if we follow them, we are simply again following the office, the external office or title that is being given and not the substance of what is being taught. If I claim to be a minister of Christ, dear ones, but by my doctrine and by my practice I deny the doctrine and worship of Jesus Christ, I make a false claim. And this is true of many today who claim to be faithful ministers. Their claim as well is false if their doctrine and life are scandalous. The second reason why these false prophets had a following, the second reason why they were able to delude and deceive the masses to consider them to be faithful prophets, was because these false prophets said, Is not the Lord among us? You see, these scandalous shepherds were able to mislead the people of God because they appealed to the outward form of religion, the outward form even of the true religion. They, in effect, were saying the Lord is among us, people, because we yet have the temple. We yet have the sacrifices and the priesthood, the ceremonies and the law and the prophets. 
Therefore, the Lord must be among us. Again, I submit to you that we will be indeed deceived if we merely look to the outward forms of the Christian religion. If ministers take pride in the outward name of Presbyterian or Reformed, but adopt an altered confession of faith from that adopted by the Westminster Assembly or the faithful Church of Scotland at that time, or on the other hand, if a church that claims to be Presbyterian or Reformed ignores and if it has descended from those nations or from that particular church at that time and it ignores the solemn league and covenant sworn by their, their Presbyterian and Reformed forefathers on their behalf, such ministers are appealing more to a mere name than to the truth for which those forefathers fought and for which those forefathers were willing to suffer, were willing to be persecuted, and were willing to brave the scaffold for. O beloved, how we must always take heed to ourselves in this congregation that we do not allow our purity of worship to become a mere formalism. We must worship the Lord our God only as He has commanded. Indeed, that is the case. But we must never forget who we are worshiping by these divinely appointed forms. For if Joab in 1 Kings 2.28 was not preserved from death when he fled to the temple and clung to the horns of the brazen altar when Solomon's wrath was about to fall on him, if his clinging to the outward forms of religion would not preserve him from death, neither will it preserve us and save us. If that's all we're doing is clinging to the horns of the altar. It will not save us. There is no virtue in the ordinances in and of themselves. The virtue flows, the power flows from Christ and from the Holy Spirit. Those are simply means, appointed means, that we should obey, but they are means. There is no virtue in them. If our hearts, dear ones, do not express through our worship of the living Lord, our love of God, our fear for the Lord, our joy in the Holy Ghost, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, then our worship is indeed as vain as the worship of the scribes and the Pharisees, whom the Lord condemned. And the third reason why the scandalous ministers of Micah's time were followed by the masses is because they promised none evil can come upon us. You see, they told the people what the people wanted to hear. That's what the people wanted to hear. No evil can come upon us. 
We're safe and secure from any kind of danger or catastrophe. You see, the false prophets promised outward peace and security while God Himself was threatening judgment upon the nation and upon the church for its gross defection from the Lord their God. A people that flock to hear a minister for his positive, upbeat message are a people that you can count on are prime candidates to be deceived. They're going to have their ears tickled. And they are, as Calvin said, I mentioned this last Lord's Day, people who find themselves deceived, find themselves deceived because they willed to be deceived. They place themselves in that situation. They're responsible even for their own deception. The second main point this Lord's Day are the divine judgments upon unfaithful ministers. First of all, in Micah 3.6, the first judgment is that they will be detected. They will be shown to be what they really are. They will be revealed to be, in fact, unfaithful shepherds. The prophet says, Therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. They won't have a word of prophecy. They won't be able to communicate on behalf of God. They will not know the will of God. They will be silent. They will be shown to be what they are. Now, whether that happens in time or when it happens... Or if it happens, it will, if it doesn't happen in time, it will happen when they stand before the Lord. Unfaithful shepherds will be revealed. Nothing will be secret. Everything will be made known. And I do not again say that all unfaithful shepherds are unfaithful to the same degree. I do not say that all unfaithful shepherds are necessarily non-Christians. For many have the foundation, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, where he is specifically talking about ministers in that passage. And the foundation is laid, which is Christ, but what is built upon that foundation is either gold, silver, or precious stones, which is the faithful doctrine and truth of God's Word. Or it is wood, hay, and stubble. And all the wood, hay, and stubble will on that final day be burned and shown to be what it is. There will be a time of revelation as to the quality of work of a minister's life. And the Apostle says, he will be saved though as by fire. 
because the foundation remains. He has understood and believed the the truth as to the fundamentals, but his work will be burned. There is coming a time, whether in this life or in that final judgment, a time of detection and revelation. That's the first judgment. The second judgment is in verse 7. And it is one of confusion. Confusion that is brought upon the false prophets, the unfaithful shepherds. Chapter 3, verse 7. There Micah says, Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. You see, when it comes down to it, that which is false cannot be defended. When it comes down to it, that which is not true cannot stand in the presence of the truth. The Word of God is forever settled in the heavens. There is nothing that can destroy Though the servant can be destroyed, the truth which he has proclaimed cannot be bound. Though a servant can be exiled from a land, the truth cannot be exiled from a land. And the false and unfaithful shepherds who proclaim error, when they come face to face with the truth, are thrown into utter confusion. They don't know how to respond. They can't respond. Because the truth is that which sets free. It is the truth which alone makes sense. And so, the second judgment is one of confusion that is brought upon unfaithful shepherds. And then by way of application, dear ones, as we come to a conclusion, the sermon this Lord's Day. I would simply, again, submit to you that if we cannot sweat, if we cannot squirm in our seats under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, when God speaks to us through the preached word and be thankful for it. Be thankful that God's rod and His staff comfort us. You see, it doesn't say God's rod and staff beat us to death. The rod and the staff of the Good Shepherd comforts the sheep. It prevents them from going off the deep end. And dear ones, when you hear the Word of God preached and you feel kind of hot, like you're on the hot seat... You're squirming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Be thankful that the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and applying it to your life. For otherwise you would be dead or asleep in your sin. Be thankful and praise God for the conviction that comes. For it is at that point in time when the gospel is preached, dear ones, in all of its power, 
and in all of its glory by a minister that is under no self-serving constraints, that is under no bribes from men, but freely declares the gospel of salvation to all without respect of persons. That's when, dear ones, the glory of the gospel shines forth through a faithful minister who is faithful in his doctrine and faithful in his life and practice. You see, a bribed gospel, when we as ministers are bribed and compromised for the truth or in the truth, when we yield to those various points of greed that I mentioned earlier, we have a bribed gospel. It is not then entirely the way we are preaching it, a free gospel. At least it's not consistently free. We have these kinds of constraints placed upon us by ourselves or by men and it becomes a bribed and an unfree gospel at that point. A minister's only constraint should be in preaching the love of God and the fear of God. The love of Christ constrains me and by the fear of God a faithful minister will persevere in his ministry in declaring a mighty and holy and merciful God who commissioned him. It was in the indulgences, the time in which indulgences, the Second Reformation in Scotland, were handed out. Bribes to the ministers the churches of Scotland by the king by Charles II and then by James II you see these kings had through persecution death privation they had tried everything to destroy the covenanted cause but they could not divide they could not conquer the covenanters as long as they were attacking them by means of of persecution. But then, through the satanic idea of offering a bribe, an indulgence, by saying simply, if you will promise not to preach against the king, against the laws of the king, against the laws that are established within the church, if you'll simply be silent about those things and go on with your ministry, you can return to your homes you can enjoy the financial security and the comforts that you had previously. You can have a regular salary. You can have your congregation back. But dear ones, it was that very thing. The bribe. Not the persecution, but the bribe that divided the covenanted cause as more and more ministers were brought into the indulgence, fewer and fewer had the courage to withstand. But God granted grace to a few. He granted grace to those who were faithful to the end, who were willing to lay down even their lives so as to preach a free gospel. 
an unbribed gospel, an uncompromised gospel. It was Satan, you recall, in his temptations that sought to bribe the Lord Jesus Christ as well by offering him a bribe, an indulgence. But faithful ministers, not sinless ministers, but faithful ministers will nevertheless follow in the footsteps of their Lord and they will as well with the Lord Jesus Christ command Satan to get behind them that they will not bow down nor worship him because to accept a bribe ultimately is to bow down to the enemy. To give in to greed and covetousness That's why Micah addresses this issue. It is a serious thing within the life of a minister. To bow to it is to give in to the enemy. But not to is to walk in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the faithful minister. Please stand with me in prayer. Our blessed God and Redeemer, our faithful witness and minister, the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to Thee this day. We come appealing to Thy grace and mercy, to Thy righteousness, to Thy goodness, to Thy works of obedience and not to our own. For, Lord, there is nothing that is within us that is good in and of ourselves. For we have defiled through our sin all that would give indication of the image of God within us. We have profaned Thy name. We have sinned against Thee. But, Lord, our God, we do come to Thee trusting in a free gospel that is offered to us this day upon the merits of Christ, not upon our worthiness, not upon our goodness, but is proclaimed to each of us to believe and to trust in Christ alone. And that doing so, we will have life. And that life is eternal. That life can never be taken away. Father, we do pray that such a free gospel will be proclaimed by faithful ministers, many faithful ministers in this present day. We pray, Lord, that Thou would raise up an abundance and a multitude of faithful servants to go out into the harvest field and to proclaim Thy Word and Thy Gospel. We ask, Lord God, that Thou would give to us the grace to pray for faithful ministers, that we would seek Thy face, that Thou would bless Thy church, that Thou would would remove Thy judgment and Thy great displeasure from Thy church at this point in time, and that Thou would restore unto us the glory of and the blessing of having a faithful ministry. We pray, Heavenly Father, that Thou would give us the grace to mark out those who are unfaithful. And Father, that Thou would cause those who are unfaithful to become ashamed 
of their unfaithfulness, that Thou would draw them unto a faithful ministry. That, Lord God, we would see many crossing that line and that we would see many adhering to the covenant of our forefathers and to the confession and catechisms which are agreeable to the Word of God. We ask our Lord and our God that Thou would bless Thy church in this way, and we will be careful to give Thee the praise and the glory. In Christ's name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.